Hello and welcome to another episode of Wither the Luniversity, the podcast of the Peerless Review. I'm excited about my guest today. Uh, his name is Dave Porter. Um, he is former professor of psychology at Berea College. Uh, he was provost there for a time. Um, now he uh, considers himself a professor in exile after uh, he was terminated uh, by that university. And he currently has some updates to give us as it relates to his uh, ongoing case against Beria. He's also been faculty at the Air Force Academy. He has dozens of publications. His most recent publication uh, you can find at the Peerless Review, peerlessreview.org, and that publication is How Hostile Environment Perceptions Imperil Academic Freedom, The Effects of Identity and Beliefs on Perceptions and Judgments. Dave, thanks for joining me. Thank you, Adam. It's a pleasure to be here. So I think we're going to get into lots of stuff, Title IX, uh, military wokeness, um, accreditation. But I think it's best if if we start with uh, your story at Beria and um, and uh, how that relates to your recent publication at Peerless. But I guess first, let's rewind to what, maybe 2015, where the troubles began, thereabouts. Um, I guess we could rewind all the way to 1949, where I was born at Berea, when my father was a student here. Uh, and uh, he went on to graduate from Berea, get his degree in law, and then became an FBI agent and uh, moved to, uh, let's see, from Kentucky, we moved to Detroit, Baltimore, Monterey, and Los Angeles. Uh, in 1967, I went into uh, the Air Force at the Air Force Academy. In 71, uh, I graduated and uh, became a, uh, well, I got a master's degree from UCLA in industrial relations, then became a helicopter pilot, uh, flew for 10 years and uh, or actually seven years in Hawaii, and then went back to the Air Force Academy. Uh, the Air Force was very good to me. In addition to the uh, Academy and UCLA, uh, they sent me to Oxford to get my doctorate in experimental cognitive psychology. I returned to the Air Force Academy in 1986 and became uh, involved not only in higher education at the Air Force Academy, uh, but at a number of accrediting universities. Uh, I was one of uh, a group of people who worked on developing Western Governors University uh, and uh, establishing how how that process would would work. Uh, in 2001, I, grad I <laughs> graduated. I retired from the Air Force. Uh, came to Berea as the academic vice president and provost. Uh, I had a background with as I said, accrediting agencies and especially the American Association of Higher Education. I had worked with them a lot and done a lot of visits, uh, you know, with the uh, virtues and advantages of doing classroom assessment and uh, assessment in general and its role in accreditation. Uh, when I came to Berea, uh, it had a declining graduation rate uh, for the last 
five or six years, it was down to about 45%. Uh, and uh, it had a visit from the Southern Association of Colleges and Schools, SACS, the accreditor that had over 50 recommendations. And uh, recommendations aren't are more than recommendations, as you know, they're really criticisms, uh, and primarily in the area of assessment. So my background in assessment made me uh, attractive to the, the hierarchy and the powers that be. Uh, I came to Berea and uh, served as academic vice president and provost for four years. Uh, the kind of leadership I observed at uh, the, the college was certainly different from what I had experienced in the Air Force. Uh, and I can tell you some stories about uh, those, those differences. Uh, the president and I uh, had very similar terminal values in terms of what we wanted with higher education, uh, but very different ways of going about uh, achieving those goals. So after four years by mutual agreement, I stepped down, returned to the classroom, uh, and became a part of the Department of Psychology. And that uh, department uh, became uh, incredibly successful in terms of setting high standards, attracting students, uh, especially students across the, the spectrum of uh, identities and capabilities. Uh, but all of them, uh, we found, had the capacity and the potential to become uh, exceptional students. Uh, we got to the point where about three quarters of our students were entering graduate school uh, within three years after graduating from Berea College. As you may be aware, Berea College only accepts students who are uh, basically Pell Grant eligible, come from families that uh, make less than about $40,000, $45,000 a year. So a lot of the students at Berea are students who have not imagined or certainly not assumed that they were going to get a college education to begin with. Uh, but they're, uh, they work together extremely well. They're very appreciative and grateful for uh, faculty who work with them and help them learn and develop the skills they need to achieve success. And uh, I was really proud of the department and, and what we had accomplished. One of the things that uh, really applied or really attracted students was doing real research. There, there are lots of people who uh, argue about the issues of the day, but few people have actual evidence or data to support that. And in industrial organizational psychology, uh, is really applied psychology of uh, how do how do we measure the things that matter and how do we make sense of, of those measures? And uh, some of the studies we had done earlier were in uh, the role that grades play in uh, students' success later on. And what we found is the general studies program, the grades in those uh, in those courses, that were required general studies were often very predictive of who was going to graduate and uh, also how well they would do later in, in their GPA success. So we also identified some real uh, anomalies in different departments where some 
departments were giving over 50% A's and others were giving less than 20% A's, uh, which made it very, very difficult to use, uh, use these data in any kind of, of prediction. And it would be in the interest of the institution that students make decisions on what they were going to major in, not based on how easy it was to get basically, uh, you know, their, their actual interest and where they had capability. So uh, 2017, I uh, became involved as an advisor to a Title IX complaint. Uh, and what I observed was uh, just absolutely contrary to everything I knew about Title IX, about fairness, about uh, interactional justice, uh, about due process, <laughs> and about the Constitution. Uh, and there were some, uh, I guess what I observed was a case where the administration uh, was more an advocate than a, uh, an arbiter or seeking the truth or fairness. And uh, I attempted to get the president to speak out in favor of academic freedom. And uh, he deferred telling me that uh, times were fraught and uh, he was going to wait and see what the faculty thought about it before he said anything. Um, I also, you know, at one point drafted what would be an open letter to the campus uh, outlining all the, uh, the things that I saw that were unfair. And in fact, the essay was called unfair. We should and probably pause for just a moment to, to remind listeners that this was about two years after a dear colleague letter from Barack Obama's Department of Justice that um, essentially mandated that colleges and universities expand their um, their uh, limitations in terms of what would even count as a Title IX violation. Um, and so essentially Title IX was weaponized to police speech, um, to chill uh, um uh, debate on campus. Um, I, I would argue that it was a purposeful attempt to do that. I guess some people who are more generous to the Obama administration would argue that that was an unfortunate side effect. Um, but either way, what happened, I think, was your colleague um, was accused by uh, various other professors of producing a hostile environment, right? Yes. And, and actually, he was accused of many things. It was the kind of the, the tactic of throw a plate of spaghetti at the wall and see what sticks. Uh, he was accused of uh, uh, discrimination in hiring, discrimination in promotion, retaliation, and creating a hostile environment with about a dozen counts of instances uh, that included scoffing at uh, white privilege uh, as, as violations or creating hostile environment. The first three of those, all the discrimination charges and the retaliation uh, were dropped and uh, the majority of the incidents were dropped. Uh, the college ignored the severe and pervasive requirement uh, that was supposed to be in Title IX to show hostile environment and ended up uh, convicting him on the basis of three incidents that had occurred over a six year period. Uh, which, and none of them were, uh, you know, injurious or willful uh, or intentional. And I thought 
you know, to promote uh, integration and to achieve the goals of Title IX and to create uh, environments that that were uh, open to, to inquiry and conversation and inviting and supportive and not abusive. Uh, this was going in exactly the wrong direction. These are things that we talk about industrial organizational psychology. And uh, as I talked with my class about the underlying issues and the forms of organizational justice and the differences in those and the tension between uh, education's absolute, the absolute necessity of academic freedom and freedom to express your views and opinions to the learning process uh, and restrictions about creating hostile environments, especially when they're defined as anything that might upset or, uh, you know, make other people feel bad. Uh, you know, there was a real tension there between those, those two things. And the student enthusiasm for this was as great as any topic I've, I've ever uh, brought up in class. Uh, basically, the students wanted to understand what their rights were. There were students who had been uh, thrown out of class for rolling their eyes at some claim that an instructor made and uh, required to provide written and uh, a verbal apology before they could come back into class. That's a clear violation of, uh, of their rights, not just of academic freedom, uh, but free speech. And uh, so the students were very interested uh, in finding out more. There are a whole lot of variables that are involved. To what extent does one's identity uh, affect these things? What about their beliefs uh, and the effect on when you perceive a situation? Which situations are going to be perceived as hostile environments? Do people agree on those? Uh, and do people... When people make judgments about academic freedom, what is the influence of the hostile environment perception? Uh, there are a lot of students who think, and a lot of uh, actually citizens who think, there's a hate speech exception to the uh, to the First Amendment. Uh, obviously, there there isn't, and especially uh, when hate speech is extended uh, to anything that's going to upset other people. So. What we have is a failure to communicate and a, a lot of misperception. And rather than rant and rave about it, uh, uh, the class and I thought it would be a great idea uh, to actually try and take some measures. And in a sense, this was uh, qualitative research in that we didn't delimit or define the variables beforehand. We wanted to ask a lot of questions and uh, in a lot of different ways and see what the relationships among them was, and uh, also to learn how you might measure some of these things. My, my own work at uh, Oxford University was creating a computer game and looking at the way people played it and providing evidence that what people claimed or said sometimes was contrary to, what, uh, to how they behaved and how they played the game, you know, that they had espoused strategies and tactics that made sense uh, to them verbally, but their actual performance was sometimes quite different. 
And when you interfered with people's ability to talk to themselves by giving them a verbal side task, uh, on some tasks, you could actually get their performance to improve. So if you stop people saying silly things to themselves, they sometimes perform better uh, than if you let them blather on. So this was the setup for doing this uh, survey research. And we came up with a survey uh, that had about 80 items on it. Of, of those, about 40 items were connected to 20 scenarios. Uh, and these were realistic situations that uh, could have occurred. Some of them occurred at Berea College. Some of them had occurred over the last 20 years that I had been there. Some of them occurred at other institutions. And some of them, uh, you know, not quite half of them had occurred at this Title IX uh, process that I had observed, where there were a number of things that were just flat out wrong that the administration had ignored or never addressed. And uh, I think getting the input from the campus community of, of how they felt about things, whether the situations described were actual hostile environments or not, and whether or not they would be actions that were protected by academic freedom were important questions. And to find out how identity and beliefs predicted those two out, the real goal uh, of doing the research. So let me sum up here then. <clears throat> In an attempt to um, gauge where uh, the students of Berea College actually were in terms of their valuation of academic freedom um, and uh, what, how that is in tension, perhaps, with hostile environments. You compile the survey, um, administered this. Uh, some of the survey questions depicted um, scenarios that were similar in character to ones that had actually occurred um, at that university and some others. Uh, and, and the goal here was to try to quantify um, you know, just how much of um, a value academic freedom is to the student body and also to predict whether their um, valuation of academic freedom was dependent on their identity uh, categories or belief systems. Um, is that a good summary of, of what the plan was here? Yeah, that, that was very good. And as you, at your encouragement, uh, I included the whole survey in the, uh, uh, in the publication on Peerless. So now the, this is, the results of the survey are now available at peerlessreview.org. Um, right. And it was at this point that you ran into trouble with your colleagues, right? And as I understand it, their complaints were two. Um, and correct me if I'm wrong. One is uh, that they were uh, uh, some of your colleagues uh, were were angry that some of these scenarios had been adapted from uh, actual existing complaints at the the college. Um, the other criticism seemed to be that um, there was no IRB or internal review board approval and so that you were using human subjects without permission. Um, so is, is it right that those were generally the two lines of criticism that you encountered? I think the, the initial 
criticism came from a social media posting from one of the original grievance in the Title IX, uh, who said the survey had no academic purpose or meaning, that uh, it was pure retaliation, and I had uh, unfairly involved students in uh, what was she did, she claimed was a purely faculty matter, that uh, these were things that students shouldn't be uh, involved in, and, and they're uh, you know, it didn't have anything to do with uh, IO psychology, which is patently untrue. But, uh, you know, when a person gets on social media and claims that they've been uh, attacked by an old white guy, uh, you know, they often find many, many people who are sympathetic. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, Brett Stevens uh, recently had an editorial in the New York Times uh, where he talks about uh, evil clowns and, uh, cowardly lions and uh, basically the evil clowns are the DEI cadre uh, who often uh, are not well prepared, who flout the rules and, uh, you know, create programs that are sometimes counterproductive. But the, the real damage is done by administrators who are cowardly lions. And rather than exercising leadership and integrity and uh, standing for uh, the principles uh, that are in faculty manuals and uh, in the Constitution uh, and in due process and un our understanding of due process, uh, they they kind of uh, rush to get out in front of the mob and pretend that that's leadership. And this was a case where what started on social media became, uh, you know, I, I'd say upset on on campus. There there were people who were. Uh, distressed by it. My own students were getting bumped and nudged and occasionally spit at uh, on cr at crosswalks because of what was being said. So there was there was concern and the administrative response was to uh, immediately shut everything down and basically uh, say the side with the, the the claim on social media that the uh, the survey really had no academic purpose, that uh, it was dangerous and that it needed to be uh, taken down, that I needed to be removed from the classes, that I was banished from the, the campus because my mere presence was seen to be a danger to certain faculty and students, you know, those who, those who had lied about me primarily, and uh, uh, that uh, we couldn't give out the what we had promised uh, for compensation, a drawing for people who had participated in the survey and that I was prohibited from uh, from sharing uh, or analyzing the data. Well, I'm happy that uh, Peerless Review can host uh, and allow you to share that um, and analyze it. Uh, but the result here, ultimately, of this cancellation attempt was that it was successful, right? They ultimately terminated your employment. Well, yes, this and this was 10 weeks later. I, I wanted a, an immediate trial, but uh, apparently that that couldn't be in the in the interim. Uh, I had a lot of students who were very supportive, who knew what the truth was. There was a uh, you know, Save Dave campaign, and they were uh, putting stickers, which uh, students who were apprehended doing this were called before the uh, the administration and threatened with uh, disenrollment and suspension. Uh, 
for having done that. The students still in the Student Government Association uh, nominated me for the uh, uh, Student Service Award, the annual Student Service Award, and the Student Senate approved it. Um, one of the uh, grievance spouses uh, basically uh, was also an advisor to the Student Government Association uh, and sent out a number of e emails, which uh, have since been determined clearly to be defamatory, that uh, making false claims that uh, I had refused to send uh, the the survey to the IRB and that I had and that I was racist and misogynist and that I was, uh, you know, this was a personal vendetta and that uh, I was in the process of being fired and shouldn't receive the award. And this was uh, basically read to uh, the SGA representatives and they withdrew and decided not to award for the first time that I know of in the college's uh, history or since they'd been assigning the award, no award was given that, that year. Uh, so I had support, but uh, in the 10 weeks that I was, I was also prohibited from communicating in any way with any student at the college uh, by the president's uh, you know, direction. So I was isolated from campus. I couldn't go on campus. I was taken out of my classes. I couldn't communicate with students. 10 weeks later, uh, after a lot of things had been said and done, I, I met a, a faculty appeals council. I had asked for uh, two days to present my case and they told me I could only have one day uh, because the prosecution only had one day or was, was only going to take a day rather than uh, clear and convincing evidence that had been used at other times in dismissal cases. Uh, this evidentiary standard of a preponderance of the evidence, which means 50-50 plus a feather, uh, was taken. Uh, the dean himself served as not only the grievant, but the prosecutor. Uh, and he was also the supervisor of uh, every faculty witness and uh, everybody who was on the appeals committee. So, uh, you know, he made a number of assertions that uh, uh, they simply accepted and uh, they recommended to the president that I be dismissed for. Uh, and they, uh, the actual charge was that my personal conduct had interfered with my professional responsibility. And the personal conduct, uh, they said, was a breach of confidentiality requirements. And the professional responsibility was to, to maintain confidentiality, which uh, the president himself had said in an earlier letter that Title IX, uh, especially after a case has been determined, has no confidentiality. Uh, you know, the idea is that... Uh, the people who are subject to uh, punishment need to know where the boundaries are and what what are the kinds of behaviors that can lead to uh, to sanctions. And so, uh, you know, there are no confidentiality requirements. The survey itself is anybody who wants to go and look has no names in it. And uh, the mix of scenarios, uh, unless you already know 
about a particular instance or have heard of it, uh, you wouldn't be able to identify or distinguish the ones that happened recently or long ago or at Berea College or elsewhere. Uh, so uh, I think this was a, a pretext for getting rid of somebody who was uh, arguing and calling into question some of the actions of the administration. It seems pretty clear that that's the case. And you used the term there, preponderance of evidence. That's a, that's an evidentiary standard that was introduced to Title IX by that Dear Colleague letter. And if, yes. if any listeners are unfamiliar, essentially what that says is that the existence of an accusation means that a fault probably occurred, right? Um, it's 50-50 plus a feather is what Dave said, but uh, really, it, it's used in cases like car accidents and things like this, where they say, why would somebody be suing for repairs to their car if an accident hadn't happened? Um, so it's a very, very low standard of evidence, which was instituted um, into uh, Title IX complaint processes by the o Obama DOJ. Um, but you're suing uh, Berea College, and and tell us, give us some updates on what you're hoping to get from that if if you uh, manage to be victorious, and what the state of that is now. Um, okay, Af after the president uh, made the decision to dismiss me, uh, I appealed to the board of trustees who reviewed the case and basically came to the conclusion or supported the president, although they did say that uh, they didn't think the dean had handled it very well, and uh, he ended up stepping down. Uh, following uh, my dismissal, I went to the Equal Employment, uh, Federal Equal Employment uh, Opportunity Commission in uh, Louisville, and filed a, a complaint and uh, they looked over it and basically uh, figured it was beyond their interest to, to investigate. And so they gave me uh, permission to sue. And, uh, you know, that's an essential step that has to be taken. You can't just sue on a complaint uh, related to uh, retaliation or anything in, in Title IX. Uh, without their permission. And really my suit uh, was for violation of a contract. Uh, anybody who works for a public university, as, as you do, uh, has constitutional protections automatically. Those of us who work for private institutions uh, don't have those, those protections automatically. However, when the college in the faculty manual and other publications promises academic freedom and promises uh, all the constitutional rights that are shared equally by citizens of a free country, quote unquote, uh, then they have an obligation to live up to those promises. And so what we're really suing for is violation of contract. We also sued the uh, person who had sent those defamatory emails for defamation uh, and the, the fact that that on the one hand prevented me from receiving uh, an award that that may or may not have had monetary value that was up to the the SGA it certainly 
I think, uh, helped turn the campus uh, in a direction in the 10-week hiatus that I was away from campus and suspended and couldn't communicate. Uh, you know, it, it didn't help my cause and, and hurt that. Uh, so first we tried that in state court. Uh, the college uh, hired an attorney and the uh, individual who we were suing for defamation had his own attorney. Uh, these were, you know, the college attorney himself uh, was from, I think, the largest legal organization in the or legal firm in the state. Uh, they hired the second largest legal firm to, to represent the college uh, and uh, another lawyer. So they had their their stable of, of lawyers. They moved it from state court to a federal court because we had mentioned Title IX and uh, that this could be uh, retaliation against me because of uh, age, race and uh, and gender. Uh, and then COVID hit, and we went through a, a long process of uh, discovery, uh, getting records and uh, getting copies of, of things that they sort of complied with and, and sort of didn't. Part of this was doing depositions, and uh, the lawyer uh, who represented Bob Baffert, who uh, as some of you may recall, was the one that had the, the racehorse that was accused of, uh, uh, of doping. Uh, he deposed me for 30 hours across six days, uh, trying to, uh, you know, basically get their, their side of the story. We also deposed about another uh, eight individuals. And uh, I think by and large, uh, people supported uh, my perspective, my views. We found, we discovered things that had been done by the administration uh, that were contrary to the faculty manual. Uh, all of this came before a federal judge. Uh, one of the things that is standard is both sides uh, argue for summary judgment, saying uh, we don't need to have a trial. The, the outcome is clear and uh, uh, you know, the judge can just decide. And surprisingly, to, to me anyway, and to my lawyers as well, the judge uh, made a decision in favor of the college uh, that I wasn't going to get a trial and that uh, basically I didn't have a case. Uh, we filed, there's a, a Rule 59E that uh, is a, a filing for reconsideration where there are errors of law and errors of fact. We identified eight uh, pretty substantial errors of fact and errors of law and uh, filed the uh, request for reconsideration. Uh, of course, when this gets done, then the other side has 30 days to file uh, a counter argument to that. And then we had uh, a week or two to file a counter to their counter. And so where the case is right now, uh, Judge Karen Caldwell uh, in the sixth district uh, federal court has all that before her and uh, will make a decision. And uh, depending on, on that decision, uh, we can uh, appeal to the sixth circuit of federal court. And there, there 
is a lot of, uh, there are a lot of cases that uh, are somewhat relevant to this issue of academic freedom. Uh, the most recent one, and probably the one that is most helpful, is uh, McAdams versus Marquette University, where a, a professor McAdams uh, was basically charged with a uh, uh, hosting a criticism of a uh, um, student teacher uh, and being discharged for uh, having posted that criticism on his website. Uh, and initially, uh, the court had found that the uh, Marquette University, which was a private uh, college, uh, basically was within its rights to dismiss him. However, that went before the uh, uh, Wisconsin, Marquette, Wisconsin, I think. Yeah, the Wisconsin Supreme Court. And uh, they found in favor of McAdams and uh, he was reinstated. So potentially what I have to gain is uh, reinstatement and maybe recovery of my good name as, uh, you know, as a professor and teacher. Uh, that would come with with back pay, and I've been unemployed now since uh, September of uh, 2018. And uh, you know, once you've been declared dismissed for cause and declared incompetent, uh, it's it's really didn't make sense to me to try and find another job. Uh, I've been. Uh, involved in the case. Uh, many of my students have stuck around and been supportive. The, uh, uh, you know, the publication that uh, you have on Peerless Review is really the culmination of a lot of that work, but we've given presentations. The Canadian Society for uh, Academic Freedom and Scholarship has been very supportive. The Kentucky Academy of Science has been very supportive and allowed us to present uh, material from the survey uh, successfully. Uh, the Mid-America uh, Undergraduate Psychology Research Conference, uh, my students submitted a poster there and got many uh, very positive uh, reviews from that. So I've, I've stayed active and, uh, you know, tried to, uh, you know, do the best I can to continue to fight the fight because it's not just about me. It's about uh, higher education. It's about academic freedom, uh, not just for faculty at Berea College, but students as well. And uh, at other uh, private colleges and universities to extend uh, the notion that once uh, an administration extends a promise of academic freedom, that should mean something. And, uh, you know, in this case, I you know, if this is the hill I'm going to die on, I'm I'm comfortable with that because I think the the study that that you've published reflects uh, what I know and understand and my approach to doing science and doing research, and I think it's good work. I think so too. Um, let's shift gears a little bit now, and I'm I'm going to infer a few things, and if I'm if 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 I get it wrong, let me know. Um, but I was looking at your CV again recently. Um, you are a, a veteran, uh, highly experienced in a, in a lot of different domains of the military. Um, you have been in the past a Title IX advocate, 
you served as a race relations instructor um, for some of your time at the Air Force Base in Hawaii. Um, when I read your CV, it looks to me like you are um, of the the sort of traditional liberal baby boomer sex, right? Uh, where you are committed to diversity as an ideal. Uh, you think that Title IX was a, a great thing. Um, and it seems to me that uh, the... the your situation to some degree is because people who were on your side, so to speak, ideologically, um, have begun to consume their own. Uh, and, and I guess what I'm saying is you don't strike me as a particularly dogmatic conservative. And frankly, just in the few conversations I've had with you, you kind of seem like an old hippie who was in the in the military um, for for some time. Um, so am I right about that? Like what happened? Like you thought that you liked Title IX, you're an advocate of it, and you ended up being smoked by uh, the, the, the same people um, who for a long time were right where you were on this stuff, I think. I, uh, I guess I'd have to plead guilty to that, <laughs> to, to much of, of what you've said. And, uh, you know, I was a classic liberal, a, a hippie uh, or a progressive uh, in a location where there, that wasn't particularly advantageous. Uh, in the 80s and 90s, while most of uh, higher education was rushing to the left, I can assure you the Air Force Academy uh, was solidly uh, in in the red, in the conservative on the conservative side, and uh, you know the fact that uh, my initiatives and my approach to education, uh, I think, were things that were matters of concern to a lot of people at, at the academy. Sociology course, uh, there are many cadets who believed that they had never met uh, a gay person or had never met an atheist. Uh, and so as part of the sociology course, we would invite panels from uh, Colorado College Bisexual Gay and Lesbian Alliance to come in and talk to cadets for the first time. And it was uh, you know, quite an experience. I was also president of the local Unitarian Church, Unitarian Universalist Church. Um, and uh, we had connections to uh, to both atheists and, and even Wiccans. And so, you know, and I know a couple of times we invited Wiccans in who came in and talked about modern witchcraft and uh, just kind of blew the minds of uh, of some of the cadets. But this is what sociology is about. The vice dean at one time called me in and uh, asked me to bring the sociology book. He was very concerned because he had heard reports of uh, the diversity that I was promoting. And uh, uh, he, he looked through the book and came to the chapter uh, on deviance and uh, said, well, at, at least you teach him that it's wrong <laughs> and uh, gave me a pass and, and let me go with with that. Uh, so. You know, I, I have been very uh, independent uh, throughout my time. I was involved in, uh, you know, environmental causes uh, and was on the program committee for the first, second and third national environmental uh, 
film festival that we had in uh, in Colorado Springs. Uh, we also sponsored a showing of uh, The Last Temptation of Christ when a collection of uh, conservative religious organizations had threatened to boycott any theater that showed it. Uh, we showed it in the Unitarian Church for, for two weeks. And basically, uh, we didn't charge admission, but we filled the the church every every night for for two weeks for two showings. Oh, let me let me pause you here for a second because I am a man of the right, um, and uh, if if I can imagine some of my listeners who uh, share my political beliefs would say, "Listen to this guy. This stuff was was in the military." you know, 30 or 40 years ago, we we got Wiccans and LGBT education at the Air Force Academy back in 1978. Um, and and uh, I'm thinking, too, of my father, who is a veteran, um, who was also born your same year, 1949, um, who would be horrified at the the wokeness that's on display in the uh, the military now. Um, so again, it seems like this stuff that you've been involved with for the better part of 50 years um, has metastasized now, right? It's it's become uh, um, so uh, toxic that it can no longer accommodate the kind of open inquiry and uh, viewpoint diversity that you still value, I think. So how do you how do you account for that as somebody who has been associated with progressive causes throughout and things like this? Yeah. And I, I think wokeness um, is a term that is, has different meanings uh, to, to different individuals uh, and cancel culture is inherently pernicious where we're going to punish somebody uh, for what they've said or what they think or, or believe. I think that's dangerous. I think that's unconstitutional. I think it flies in the face of everything uh, since Oliver Wendell Holmes in 1919 had his great dissent that uh, basically the Constitution, the theory of the Constitution is we have a variety of viewpoints. Critical race theory in itself uh, is very closely aligned with, I think, a, a sociological understanding uh, that systems are important, uh, that this and systems basically are created and sometimes reflect the biases and prejudices of the individuals who create them. And so they, they need to be measured. Uh, and understanding political and economic systems is important. And so I think, at least as I understand what uh, General Milley and other military leaders have said is banning outright teaching uh, any perspective or any theory. Uh, you know, should we ban teaching about communism, for for example? Uh, I think it would lead to an officer corps if the academies are were to adopt kind of an exclusive and narrow education uh, that would not be. Uh, as capable as the one we're producing now. Um, so, is the, so is, is, is the one that we're producing now capable? 
and and of doing what because you know i would i i never served in the military and i'm gonna make my dad mad here too but uh it it seems as far as i can tell you know i'm 44 years old um with the brief exception of like a one-month war in 1991 i can't think of a single thing that the u.s military has has uh achieved in terms of the conventional scope of what they're supposed to do which is defend the military interests of the united states um you know afghanistan was a mess iraq was a mess uh and now it seems like they're more concerned with with crt and and uh flying the pride flag at u.s embassies than they are with advancing any any sort of american interests at home or abroad i mean what would your response to that be um, and feel free to smack me down as my father would, I'm sure. Yeah, I, I think uh, the American military is by far uh, the most capable in the world. And I think what's happening in Ukraine now uh, with uh, American military, not only American uh, military equipment, uh, but the training that uh, is being provided and the model of leadership, military leadership uh, that the Ukrainians have uh, is uh, a clear testament to the effective, how effective the military can be. Uh, I think uh, militarily uh, in Iraq, we were very successful. Uh, I think politically it was disastrous. Uh, and I think in Afghanistan, similarly, the military was very successful. Uh, the politicians uh, were not successful at all. We we were got embroiled in conflicts uh, that uh, we didn't fully understand or appreciate, uh, and uh, we ended up uh, with you know people in the military basically do the best they can with what they have and in the environment that they inherit. And given given those constraints, uh, I think the American military has performed admirably. And if you look at our NATO allies, uh, uh, you know I think there's a, a high level of respect and regard for. American tactics and, and leadership and the approach that's taken, the, the notion that, uh, you know, well-educated and empowered uh, officer corps uh, is going to be far more effective than the alternative, the kind of Soviet authoritarian autocratic model. That was Admiral Schofield, not Admiral, General Schofield, uh, who said, uh, you know, the, the discipline which makes soldiers of a free country reliable in battle is not to be gained by harsher tyrannical means. Rather, it is on the fields of friendly strife are sown the seeds that in other days and other climes will bear the fruits of victory. That basically the idea of competition, the idea of exercise, the idea of activities make us an incredibly potent military force. And I, I think the American military, uh, you know, despite the fact that my politics were somewhat different than yours and different from, I'd have to say, the majority of people in the military, when it came time to uh, for the rubber to meet the road, to have the exercise, to uh, accomplish what needed to be done, and I had the privilege of serving in uh, the Rescue and Recovery Service. So even in peacetime, we had... Uh, 
we had great missions to go on that resulted in, uh, you know, life-saving saving missions. Uh, we got the job done and we got it done very effectively. For every American in the last 50 years who's died in, uh, in combat, uh, not in the last 50 years, I guess, well, since Vietnam, uh, every, every American that's died in combat, we've lost five in training and exercises uh, that have gone on. And the idea is you, you sweat in peace so you don't have to bleed in war. Uh, that basically the American military, because of its exercises and activities, its ability uh, of a command structure that's flexible, uh, that uh, that uh, can adapt to changes and changing environments uh, and think critically about things and act and respond effectively, I think makes us a very potent force. And I think militarily, we're very good. I think the examples you cited uh, were largely political failures more than they were military failures. Well, I don't want to get too far afield. I, you know, I, as a as a rebuttal, I would point to um, the declining physical fitness standards for the military as one indication that just on the pure uh, um, level of physical ability, uh, we've had a decline. Um, but uh, to move back towards the the academic world, that I alluded to this at the beginning of our discussion. I'm curious what you think. Um, so you were kind of caught up in in the the revolution of Title IX that happened around 2015. In your opinion, was your experience the purpose of those reforms to Title IX, or was it um, an unfortunate side effect? I guess what I'm asking is because because my own sense is that. Cases like yours are exactly what that dear colleague letter was designed to produce, right? That that was the point. Um, and there's the, 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 in the sphere of things, the, the larger point is to make everybody on American campuses who holds any kind of different viewpoint from essentially the progressive leftism to be afraid to speak it, right? I had my own Title IX case um, that dragged on for six months for me. I got in trouble because I said, the LGBT uh, people didn't face discrimination in every corner of the work world, which seems to me to be a, just a blatant, obvious truth, right? There's lines of work where that might be an asset. Um, but the, 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 the way that I was repaid for that was um, a really sort of Orwellian bureaucratic process that by by a series of lucky uh, lucky chips falling, I was able to beat. But I would argue that these instances, instances like your Title IX situation, your colleagues and, and mine, these are precisely what that dear colleague letter was intended to produce um, in order to chill the ideological atmosphere um, on American college campuses. What say you to that? Um, horse hockey. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think, respectfully, that uh, I think it's a glitch rather than a feature. Uh, that uh, I think there are people on the left that are well-intentioned, uh, but sometimes uninformed or misinformed. 
And I think much of the Title IX and the Dear Colleague letter is a, a good example. Uh, the, uh, the agenda, the strategy, uh, the, the ultimate purpose was hijacked by some of these evil clowns. And uh, by evil clowns, as Brett Stevens points out, uh, they're people with, without a portfolio or without expertise who have uh, who think that feeling strongly about something is as good as having skills. And, uh, and so they uh, put into place recommendations uh, that, uh, that could work, uh, but they could only work if the people who were putting them into effect uh, had a high degree of knowledge and understanding of the educational process and of administration and a profound respect for uh, due process and for fair play. Unfortunately, the, when the, the evil clowns are joined by the cowardly lions, and uh, you know, there's, there's a reason there's not a, an academic administration version of Profiles in Courage. You know, it, it wouldn't be a very thick volume. Uh, that there's a lot of pressure on academic administrators uh, to basically get along, go along to get along. Uh, and uh, they feel that they're under attack from students or they're under attack from, uh, from faculty. They try and placate, uh, uh, you know, board members who have different views and they end up very rarely taking stands like the, the University of Chicago, the Calvin report or the standards for academic freedom, I think are superb. And it is disappointing that we don't have more administrators willing to sign up and uh, and support them and to take actions based on principles uh, and knowledge and understanding of situations rather than kind of knee-jerk reactions. So I, I think uh, there are lots of glitches and uh, one might argue that uh, a wise politicians would have foreseen these and been more circumspect in the language they put in and recognized that something like promoting the preponderance of evidence is not, uh, you know, is, is likely to lead to more wrongful convictions as much as it is, uh, you know, increasing the, the number of appropriate convictions. So changing the standards, changing the rules, uh, misrepresenting and misinformation. I know one of the more recent things that I found most distressing uh, was guidance from, um, I guess, the Department of Education uh, that they weren't going to prosecute people uh, who had made false statements associated with uh, with Title IX cases. Uh, now that that is absolutely absurd. I, I think because many of the uh, claims that were made in uh, the Title IX case that I observed, uh, I think were suggested and put in there by the Title IX administrator herself, and they were contrary to the evidence. Uh, you know, dishonesty is dishonesty, and whether you're left, right, or wherever you are, uh, misinformation and dishonesty needs to be identified and needs to be corrected. This is why I think that your evil clowns and cowardly lions, um, 
I, I think there's some truth in that account, but I also think that both of those titles gives too much credit to DEI staff. The, the staff of these offices are neither evil clowns nor cowardly lions. They're just shit lib political activists, right? They, they're morons. Um, they, they don't know what they're doing, right? What they know, they're, they, they're kind of like a little doll that's wound up, right? That just sort of chases after these violations of political correctness, right? Um, they or really they have no skill. Huh? Or they make up the violations. Well, they- yeah, I mean, that's what happened in my case. Like the, the student came to the office and they said to him, you know, like what you've described isn't actionable. That's not an actionable case. But if you wanted an actionable case, then you could say this and this and this and this. Why don't you go write another complaint? And we'll talk next time. Um, now, that's what I would consider the evil clowns. Yeah. I I just think that, you know, they they're so blinded by, well, their own ignorance, frankly, like, you know, the whole social justice racket is just a, a mark of of poor education, in my view. And, and if you look at the qualifications of the people staffing these DEI offices, they have no real expertise in anything. Most of them aren't even lawyers. Right. So they don't even understand the law that they're that they're claiming to defend. Um, now, one of the most positive outcomes, and, and I actually have never met the individual, but the college went out and hired a, law, a lawyer to run uh, their uh, diversity office. And from everything I've heard from students and other colleagues, she's just done an excellent job. Uh, so that was a, a big improvement as a consequence of uh, the mess that was made of, of my case. Well, I'm I'm really happy that you continue to fight it. When is uh, the decision that you are expecting from the district court? Do you know when that might come? Well, first we have the federal judge Caldwell has to decide on the 59E, uh, our request for reconsideration. And then once that comes down, it'll be our decision whether or not to take it to the uh, uh, 6th district panel to to appeal so and when will judge caldwell's decision come though when she's ready okay so federal it, judges it, have their own uh you know nobody so tells federal judges maybe, maybe next week maybe next week maybe this time next year who knows right i i suspect a month okay would be a reasonable time all right well, I, I hope you keep me updated and and I hope that Judge Caldwell has the 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 courage to um, see the facts in this case and and uh, give you a W here. Dave, thank you so much for joining us and for filling us in. And I invite everybody um, who is interested in this stuff to check out Dave's great study at peerlessreview.org. It's up there now. It's the top listed article. Um, Dave, thanks again. Well, thank you, Adam. I really appreciate you standing up uh, for for your beliefs. And actually, uh, criticism is, I think, the the best evidence of a belief uh, and an aspiration uh, to reclaim universities and higher education. And, uh, you know, we can move forward together. And I think one way to do that is to minimize or to eliminate uh, the use of punishment. Uh, cancel culture, I think, is really the enemy. 
And it's not so much people on the, the left or right. It's the extremists among us on either side uh, that keep moderates from having the kind of conversations that build communities, that build colleges and universities and get on with the business of uh, uh, educating ourselves and each other. Yeah, it's fantastic. I, I hope that the revitalization happens. Thanks again. Thank you, Adam.